Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Before I begin, I'd just like to have a prayer for God's special blessing on what I'm about to share with you. Our kind and loving Father in heaven, we come to you today and ask that you would fill this auditorium with your Holy Spirit from on high that your angels would have power in this place and that they would keep the devil and his forces away so that the words that I will speak can reach every heart. God, I ask a special blessing on the words that I will speak. I pray that you would touch my lips with a coal from your altar, that I would say the things that you want me to say and leave unsaid the things I should leave unsaid, and that every person here would be touched. Speak through me. Amen. Amen. My name is Paul, and I'm coming to you today from Ethiopia. Now, this is the first time in about six or eight months I've spoken up front without a translator. So if I start pausing every sentence or two, just please bear with me. I know it's a little bit unusual for a 26-year-old to be managing an 80-bed hospital, a nursing college, and a collection of rural clinics, but I also know that the only reason I am successful at my job is God's daily intervention in my life. His power and grace alone sustain the hospital. I am humbled and honored that God has given my wife and I the opportunity to serve in Ethiopia. And I hope that my story and the lessons that I share that I've learned will help you to commit your life to God and to live a life of service for Him. The road between Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, and Gimbi is about 450 kilometers long. It's notoriously rough. In recent times, it's gotten a little bit better, but it's still one of the most dangerous roads in all of Ethiopia. There are some bandits, but most of the danger actually comes from other vehicles. Car per car, Ethiopia is the most dangerous country in the world in which to drive. I pray every time I get behind the wheel, believe me, and by the grace of God, I have not yet had any serious accidents. My road to Gimby probably started at GYC Sacramento, although I didn't realize it at the time. My wife, or future wife, Petra Homan, was one of the ones who went forward at the call for long-term missionaries. I didn't want to be a missionary. I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to run for Congress. I had no interest in missions whatsoever. But in spite of this difference, Petra and I were attracted to each other, and we started dating. And Things went okay for a little while, but then she went to Argentina to study Spanish, and I started law school at Washington and Lee, and our life goals just diverged. She became increasingly convicted that God was calling her to spend her life as a missionary in Africa. I still thought that I should be a lawyer and then run for Congress. So it's not a big surprise that we broke up pretty quickly and painlessly and just stopped communicating completely, just wrote each other off. And around about this time, Petra agreed to serve as the associate dean of Weilefjord Adventist High School in Denmark. So it seemed like we were just on different tracks. But in the gap between Petra's time in Argentina and in Denmark, she and her family decided to vacation at Prince Edward Island. If you look at a map, you can see the shortest route between Petra's parents' home in Maryland 
and Prince Edward Island goes right past my parents' home in Maine. Now, it was about sundown on a Friday afternoon when Petra and her family were getting close to my family's house, and our moms are old friends, and it seemed just perfectly natural they'd stop in and spend Sabbath together. Well, I just happened to be at home that summer. <laughs> I was working for the Department of Justice, and I'd always planned on getting married when I was in my 30s or something like that, no rush anyway. But when Petra walked through the door that night, everything changed. <laughs> and just a couple hours later, I took Petra for a drive in my dad's Jeep, and we parked at this beautiful scenic overlook with the ocean underneath and everything. Unfortunately, we couldn't see anything because it was pouring rain and pitch dark because it was midnight. <laughs> but anyway, as I was there in the Jeep with Petra, we were sitting together and I said, now Petra, it'd be really great if we could be friends again. But I'd be even happier if you agreed to be my wife. And then there was this very long and very awkward silence. <laughs> and Petra said, no, uh, 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 yes. <laughs> and then Petra went off to Denmark, and I went back to law school. And we almost called off the engagement, because believe me, it's pretty scary to marry someone you don't really know. And this whole time, Petra still wanted to go to Africa and be a missionary. I still wanted to be a lawyer and run for office. But by the grace of God, we were married a few months later on top of a mountain by Roy Gain, actually. And then we both went back to school, Petra to finish her bachelor's, me to finish my law degree. Well, around about that time, we started to fall in love. Now, I have to tell you, There are big advantages to falling in love after you're married. A bunch of my married friends have told me, oh man, the honeymoon was fantastic. But as time has gone on, we're starting to get bored and things feel a little bit stale. Well, I don't want to go into the details. But Petra, in my experience, has been quite the reverse. And as we got to know each other better, we realized that we tended to be close to God when our lives were difficult and far from God when our lives were easy. And so we prayed what may seem to you to be a very stupid prayer. We prayed, God, give us a life that is so intense that the only way we can survive is by walking close with you. God, give us a life that is so intense that the only way we can survive is by walking close with you. If you are bored today, if you feel lukewarm today, if you don't want to spend the rest of your life pushing papers across a desk, if you're unsure of your future but know that you want to live an extraordinary life of service for God, I challenge you, I downright dare you to pray this prayer and to keep on praying it every day until God leads you into the life of service that he has planned. As Petra and I continue to pray this prayer, we started to feel peace about the future, even though we were really uncertain of what the future would hold. I got an offer from the U.S. government to work in the Foreign Service. Adventist Church offered me a job on Capitol Hill. But nothing seemed quite right. And all this time, Petra was just poking me and poking me and prodding me. He's like, Paul, Paul, apply for a job internationally working for the Adventist Church. Maybe there's a hospital or something that could use you. So I kind of reluctantly started looking into it. And there's this hospital in Afghanistan that I heard there was an internship there, and I looked into it. It was through Adventist Health International, and 
didn't seem to be going very well, and I was not surprised one day when I got a phone call from Dick Hart, who's the president of Loma Linda University and Adventist Health International. He said, uh, Paul, I'm really sorry, but it seems like things aren't going to work out for you and Petra to go to Afghanistan. And I said, oh, okay, no big deal. I wasn't really expecting anything anyway. He said, but Paul, we need an administrator for our hospital in Ethiopia. Would you and Petra be willing to go out there? Well, this wasn't even something we considered. I mean, I'd never dreamed of being CEO of a hospital when I was 25. But Petra and I prayed about it, and we felt you know, God had opened the door, and he'd enable us to walk through it. Let me just tell you a little bit about Gimby Adventist Hospital. The hospital is located about 6,800 feet, which is fortunately above the malaria zone, 450 kilometers due west of Addis. Hospital was started in the 1940s. Since that time, it's grown and flourished at different times. Now it's got about 80 beds, 300 plus employees, a nursing college, and a whole collection of rural clinics, some of which are not accessible by road. The hospital faces monumental challenges on every imaginable angle, but God sustains us day by day. And in the past year and a half, I've learned a number of things. I'd like to share some of the things that I have learned with you today. The first thing I learned is that when we put ourselves on the line for God, He comes through powerfully and unmistakably. When I was in the U.S., I felt like I did not need God. I could live my life just fine on my own, or at least that was the way I felt about it. But in Ethiopia, things are totally different. Our hospital is on a very precarious financial footing. The cost of doing business has gone up dramatically in the past couple of years. For example, physician salaries in the market rate have doubled in the past two years. The price of TEF, the staple food, has quadrupled in the past two years. Now, we could have just raised our prices, but then we could only serve the rich people in Gibby. Not that there's any rich people there, really. But as a mission hospital, we felt that it was very important to have our service available for everyone. What all this means is we're often very, very short of cash, and it comes down to the end of the month, and it doesn't look like we're going to be able to meet payroll. And this is very, very serious because our employees live paycheck to paycheck. Some of the lower paid employees don't have anything to eat toward the end of the month. So as it comes down to the end of the month, I meet with Hennick, the head accountant at the hospital, and we pray together and ask that God will give us money to meet payroll. And every month he comes through, but you know what? We never have money left over. Our payroll in a month is about 20,000 US dollars, which isn't much, by the way, for 300 employees. But after we meet the payroll, we'll have $2 left over, $5 left over. Every month at Gimby is a miracle from God. Amen. Now, our hospital is kind of the referral center for our whole region of Ethiopia. There are a few other hospitals in the region, but none of them provide care on our level. So we get all the most difficult and desperate cases coming to Gimby. And some of these cases are very difficult and desperate indeed. A couple months ago, a young Muslim woman came in with her family late in the afternoon. She had severe post-operative complications. Our medical staff took one look at her and said she's going to be dead in a couple of hours. Petra, my wife, is the chaplain at the hospital. She came into the family and asked if they wanted prayer. Normally, the Muslim families are a little reluctant for prayer, and this family was no exception, but 
they felt that the situation was desperate enough that they'd try anything. So Petra prayed, and they weren't particularly enthusiastic about it, and they definitely refused her offer of a Bible because God has blessed us with the ability to give Bibles for free to all of our patients. At this point, all of us in the hospital, myself, Petra, many of our staff, started to feel a special burden for this girl. And throughout the afternoon and into the evening, we continued to come into her room and pray with her. At about midnight, I checked back into her room, and things looked really, really grim. The nurses told me, this girl's going to die in a couple minutes, maybe maximum of an hour. The next morning, we came into the hospital, and everything was quiet. And I said to Petra, oh, shucks, babe. I bet they've taken her and buried her by now. And then the nurses came like, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Sister Petra, Sister Petra. Let me just explain. In Ethiopia, your last name is not important. Everyone goes by their first name. So I'm Mr. Paul. Anyway, they said, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, come look, come look. So I opened the door to the ICU. And the girl was sitting up in bed eating breakfast. She was talking with her family. She was completely healed. And her family came in all around Petra and said, your prayer saved our daughter's life. Can you tell us more about God? Can you give us Bibles? I'm telling you, God is working every day to save souls at Gimby Adventist Hospital. We have a large construction site at our nursing college because we're expanding our nursing college to also be a midwifery college. And one day I found out there was some stealing going on at this work site. So I investigated things a little bit and we terminated the workers who had been responsible and set up some controls for the future. These guys who we fired were really, really unhappy. And I started getting death threats. One day I got a whole bunch of death threats back to back. So that night when I went to bed, I really carefully locked up all the doors and windows in my house and then Petra and I went to bed. And in the middle of the night we woke up when our bedroom door started opening. I can tell you that both of us started praying more fervently than usual. <laughs> and our bedroom door stopped opening. And then it started to close. And then I heard footsteps running away. And so I jumped out of bed and grabbed my machete and ran afterwards. And I found the front door wide open. Now, I'd locked everything down before I went to bed. And there were no signs of forced entry. So what this means is that someone had been hiding in my house when I went to bed and it opened my bedroom door. And do I see, I had no idea what I was getting into when I prayed to God that he'd give me a life so intense that I would only survive if I walked close to him. You have to be careful what you pray for. But today, if there's any of you who are feeling like God isn't real in your life, like he's never really done anything for you, I challenge you, go to a place that requires God's presence for your day-to-day -day survival. Second lesson I learned in Ethiopia is that God works through people, but there's often a shortage of people who are willing to let God work through them. In most of Ethiopia, there's one medical doctor for every 5,000 people, but in our area, there's only one physician for every 100,000 people. And this shortage is even tougher for the hospital because almost all physicians in Ethiopia are sponsored by the government. When they finish school, they owe the government time, they go work for the government, then they leave the country. So we have a huge challenge getting good physicians. When I arrived, we had two general practitioners, and one of them was only willing to work a couple hours a day. The other one was a fraud. I mean, literally, we're talking a catch-me-if-you-can sort of a situation. 
one Sabbath afternoon, Petra and I were in the wards and we were praying with patients and singing some hymns and stuff. And one of the nurses came and got me, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, there's an emergency in the ER and we can't find a doctor. I looked around, no doctor. So I grabbed a medical student and she grabbed her textbook and we all ran off to the ER together. <laughs> and we sat down and opened up the book and tried to figure out what in the world this patient had. And I was thinking to myself, God, this can't keep going like this. But God knew. And God sent us Dr. Priscilla, a young general practitioner from Argentina. I wish I had time to tell you all the stories, but let me just say, there are many, many people alive in Gimby today who would be dead if it wasn't for Dr. Priscilla. When I first came to the hospital, the accounting was a wreck. Just to give you an idea of how bad the accounting was, the hospital's international bank account, where a lot of our financial activity took place, was not on our hospital books. The hospital building was not on our hospital books. And I realized this was a very serious problem. Now, I didn't have any accounting background, so I got a textbook and I started looking through it. What am I going to do? How am I going to solve this? But God knew that we had this problem. And God sent David Hegstead, a highly qualified tax accountant from Washington, D.C. He sent Joel Kurtz, a brilliant business student from Southern. He sent Henrik Tesfa, this great Ethiopian accountant. And these three guys revolutionized our accounting. Let me just give you an idea how much work they did. In international auditing skills, there are five levels. One is a clean audit. That means your financial activity is pretty good and transparent. Five is no opinion. An audit that's a five means that there is so little documentation that the auditing firm can't even begin to tell you just how bad your financial activity is. <laughs> every year before I arrived, the hospital was getting fives on every audit. But by the grace of God and through the work of David, Joel, and Hennick, we went from a five to a one in one year. And what's even more remarkable is each one of these guys is 23 years old. Amen. I'm telling you these stories partly as examples of the huge positive change that one person or a group of people can bring when they dedicate their life to God. But I'm also telling you these stories because there is a great need for these kind of people. All across the world there is a need for missionaries today. There is no skill set that is irrelevant. I've got a great volunteer nurse named Scott Barlow, and he likes to say, God needs missionary janitors. And he's not knocking janitors, he's just saying that everyone has a role in the mission field. But some of you guys are young, and you may be saying, I'm too young to go work for God. I could never be in the mission field. Let me tell you a story. The General Conference came to inspect the hospital one day. We had Alan Handysides and all these top guys, and they came into the hospital, and we welcomed them, and we gave them a walkthrough, and they said, wow. This place is looking great. Things have really improved since we were here last. Can we talk to the administrator? So I took them up to my office. And we all sat down. And they said, um, <clears throat> where's the administrator? I said, that's me. And they said, oh, really? Well, where's the rest of the administrative staff? Well, we're all here. <laughs> well, at that time, the average age in our administrative committee was 26. And they said, what? This place is being run by a bunch of kids. <laughs> and we said, yeah, that's pretty much true. But you know, sometimes it pleases God to use people that are inexperienced, but people who are willing to commit themselves completely to Him. 
Now, I know a lot of you think that the way to be missionaries is to stay home, get a good job, make some money, send some tax-deductible contributions, and then just brighten the corner where you are. And that's all fine and good, and there's a time and place for that. And believe me, I love tax-deductible contributions, and if any of you wants to make one, please send me right after this program is finished. <laughs> but this sort of mindset ignores a very important point. Diversity is valuable. And I think all of you already know this from school and from work, but in the context of mission work, let me make things a little bit more clear. The people who will listen to you least are the people who know you most. The Bible tells us that no prophet has honor in his own hometown. As an example, if we had two missionary campaigns going on, two like evangelistic series, shall we say, one in Ethiopia, one in the U.S. We could double the attendance at both if we put the Ethiopian guy in the U.S. and the U.S. guy in Ethiopia. That's just the way it works. Diversity is very important, but it's also important in the theological sense. Here at GYC, our theme is unashamed, and I haven't said much about being unashamed yet. The reason I haven't said much is because we don't have a problem with being ashamed in Ethiopia, or at least the members there don't. And I'm reminded of this every morning at about 4.30 a.m. because the local mosque cranks up its speakers and starts to call to prayer. And you hear something like, It just goes on and on and on and on, super loud. And like half an hour later, the Orthodox Church comes on. They pretty much say the same thing. Anyway, what I'm saying is, if GYC had been held in Ethiopia, unashamed never would have been the theme. See, this is where we in the United States really need to learn from our Ethiopian brothers and sisters. But why is it that in Ethiopia people are unashamed and yet here in the U.S. we feel shame? Turn with me to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 reads, Now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. I know here at GYC we've been talking about being unashamed before the world, and that's great. And tonight David is going to be talking about being unashamed of the second coming. But I would submit to you that it is equally, if not more important, that we are unashamed when Christ comes. In fact, these two concepts are actually pretty closely related, because if we live our lives so that we are unashamed when Christ comes, we won't be ashamed of anything else. If we're living our life for God, we really won't care what anyone else thinks. And so we can see in this verse, you know, now I've defended myself a little bit, if we abide in Christ, we will not be ashamed. Well, what does it mean to abide in Christ? If we look at 1 John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, we'll see that abiding in Christ means believing in Jesus and loving each other. And that's all pretty simple, right? right? Well, now I've got a question for you. How many of you have the love of God in your hearts today? Please put up your hand. I'm not seeing very many hands, folks. This is GYC. We're supposed to be unashamed here. What's going on? Put up your hands if you have the love of God in your heart. Thank you. That's more like it. But now let's turn to 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, 
how does the love of God abide in him? It's kind of a rhetorical question here, but what John is really saying is this. If I've got something and you need it and I don't help you, God's love is not abiding in my heart. I have another question for you. How many of you have made a significant sacrifice to help someone who is desperately poor? Please put up your hand. And don't lie to me today. This is GYC. We're before God. Not that many hands. So GYC, we need to look at verse 18 of John, 1 John chapter 3. Little children, or we could say to ourselves, GYC, let us not love in word or tongue or with putting up our hands, but in deed and in truth. And here's where the church in Ethiopia walks all over us. If I had been in a church in Ethiopia and said, put up your hands, every person who has made a significant sacrifice to help someone who is desperately poor, every hand would have gone up. And every person would have been telling the truth. In Gimby today, it was a poor place. Malnutrition rates are high, maybe about 30%. But no one starves. It's because everyone helps each other. We need to learn from our brothers and sisters in Ethiopia. Now, today, if we're going to think about how our church is doing, if we've got a church that's ashamed of what it believes, and we're ashamed of what we believe because we don't have God's love in our heart completely, how well do you think this church is going to be doing? Not very well. Today, you're probably not surprised to learn that the average age in our church is closing up on retirement if you just look at North America and Europe. Now, if things keep going like this, the average Adventist is going to be a nursing home, and then the average Adventist is going to be dead, and then the average Adventist pastor is going to be looking for more work, which is really bad because God knows there aren't enough jobs to go around right now. But there's really good news today. All through the developing world, Africans are reaching back to help. Today in Germany, students from Africa are standing firm against heresy in the church. Today in Canada, Rwandan immigrants are revitalizing parts of the church. And all across the United States, people from Africa are breathing life back into our dying church. You know, isn't it fascinating that the gospel first came out from North America and Europe. But now, those people who are outside are coming back in to bring us the gospel. But I don't want you to think that the church in Africa is perfect. It's not. There's two main problems. Corruption and tribalism. Now, if we're going to look at the world as a whole, for our church, that is, we see that they don't have that many theological problems like we have here in the U.S. But corruption and tribalism are really, really big deals. In fact, I'd venture to say to you that for the world church as a whole, music, worship, dress, worship styles, prophecy, and sometimes even the inspiration of Ellen White are trivial issues compared to the massive damage that's being done to our church by corruption and tribalism. My wife was in Rwanda when church leaders started hacking each other apart with machetes. Tr corruption and tribalism are still killing people in Ethiopia today. Churches and institutions are in shambles. And, you know, we don't really hear about this sort of stuff today, but this is how it is. And, you know, corruption and tribalism may have been all fine and good back in the day. Back in the day when Democratic Republic of Congo was called Zaire. Back in the day when Zimbabwe was Rhodesia. Back when India used to be part of the British Empire. But it's not going to cut it today. 
Let me share another sobering piece of information for you. According to some studies, our church is losing its market share. That is, the world population just may be growing faster than our church is. GYC, if our church is going to grow, if our church is going to survive, we have to leave corruption and tribalism behind. We have to embrace 21st century ideals like communication, like transparency. You may be saying to me today, what in the world does this have to do with me? Paul, when Louisville, this is the US. Why are you talking to me about Africa? Why should I care? Well, I would say to you that you should care. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 30. Luke chapter 10, verse 30. This is the very familiar story of the Good Samaritan, and I'm not going to go through it until you're nauseated, but I do want to make one very important point. The wounded guy was a Jew. The dude who helped him was a Samaritan. What this tells us is that differences of race, ethnicity, religion, and geography are not legitimate limits on our God-given obligation to help each other. Let me just repeat that for you. The parable of the Good Samaritan teaches that differences of race, ethnicity, religion, and geography are not legitimate limits on our God-given obligation to help each other. Here in the United States, God has given us a lot. But to whom much is given, much is also required. We can't just sit on our pot of gold, people. There are people in Africa who really, really need our help. So how can you help? Well, interestingly enough, missionaries turn out to be a great check on corruption and tribalism. You see, there's nothing like an unbiased third party to resolve messy tribal conflicts. Also, missionaries don't tend to be involved in corruption. You know, in my case, if I lifted the entire gross income of the hospital, I'd still have less money than most of my law school classmates make in a year. There's just no reason that most missionaries have to start stealing stuff. Let me give you some practical examples. There was a man in Ethiopia from Bermuda. He was a church leader. His name was Delbert Perman. And during his time in Ethiopia, there was a massive tribal conflict. But Delbert stood firm. He was respected by both sides. And as long as he was in Ethiopia, there was peace. Every three months or so, we have general staff meetings at the hospital. All the staff come together and they give me constructive criticism and not so constructive criticism and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day, after we've talked about payroll and housing and all that good stuff, someone always raises this issue. Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, please send us some missionaries. Can't you get us some missionaries? And when I go to churches around Gimby, I hear the same thing. Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, can you please get us some missionaries? So it'll be like it used to be. You know, right, that in 1970, our church sent out three times as many missionaries as we sent out in 2009. GYC, if we're going to reach the world for Jesus in our generation, it's not going to be by cutting back on missionaries. It's time to expand these type of programs, especially at a time like this when every person can make a meaningful contribution 
to God's work. There is no skill set that is irrelevant. But I understand that there are some of you who cannot go to the mission field. And to you, I say, please help our church set a good example. Ethiopia really looks up to the United States and Europe, which is where Adventism started in the first place. But it's very, very hard for me to speak against tribalism in Ethiopia when we have racially separate conferences here in this country. Amen. We just can't keep going like this. I'm absolutely sure of at least one thing in my talk today. And that's that the church in America needs the church in Ethiopia. And the church in Ethiopia needs the church in America. We are all part of the body of Christ. If we want to be serious about this whole idea of reaching the world for Christ in one generation, we've got to work together on an unprecedented level. It's time to join hands in faith and prayer all around the world. And we need to move forward with a unity that this world has never seen before. Today, I'm here to tell you that when I gave God control of my life, He led me into a life that is so intense that the only way I survive is through His daily intervention in my life. And today, I urge you, I challenge you to let God take the lead in your life. To let him shake off these shackles of shame and indifference that bind you to an ordinary life so that you can just freely walk into the extraordinary life that God has planned for you. Today, God is calling for people who are willing to put aside racial and ethnic differences. God is calling for people who are willing to commit themselves totally to him. God is calling for people who will put it all on the line for his cause. Today, and I'm sorry to use a slightly stale phrase here, but today, here at GYC, God is calling for an army of youth, not just from the United States, not just from Ethiopia, but united from every nation on the globe. God is calling for an army of youth that is so committed to sharing his word so connected with God and so unashamed of their faith that nothing can stop us from reaching the world for Jesus in this, our generation. Five years ago at GYC Sacramento, when I was just starting to get together with Petra, there was a theme song called, I'll Go Where You Want Me To Go. And at that conference, thousands of us promised to go where God wanted us to go, to say what he wanted us to say, to do what he wanted us to do, and be who he wanted us to be. And if we had lived up to our promises, we would not be here today. But we're here, and we're here because we failed, and we failed because we're ashamed. But now we're starting a new year. It's time for a fresh start. It's a chance to do things over and do things right. It's a chance to recommit ourselves to God. Today, 
If there are any of you who would like to say, God, I'm sorry for the past, but today I want to commit my life and I will spend a significant part of my life as a missionary for you abroad, I ask you to come forward to the front with me for prayer. You know, missionaries are needed all over the world today. And some time ago, several thousand years ago, Jesus told his disciples to go through the whole world and spread the gospel. And when they went through the whole world and spread the gospel, they reached the world for Jesus in one generation. Today, if we're going to be serious about reaching the world for Jesus in one generation, GYC, we need to go, we need to say, we need to do, and we need to be. The harvest is ripe. All that God's waiting for is workers. Workers like you, workers like me. I'm, as nice as GYC is, I'm tired of GYC. I don't want to be coming back here when I'm 37. Today, I encourage you to join the diverse army of youth that by the grace of God will reach the world for Jesus in this, our generation. Our kind, loving, and merciful Father in heaven, you know that in many ways we've failed you in the past. But today as we start 2010, we ask that you would give us courage, that you would fill our hearts with your love so that there is no room for shame. And today, I thank you for all of these people who have come forward to commit their lives in service to you as missionaries. And I pray that you would continue to give them the courage to go where you want them to go, to say what you want them to say, and to be who you want them to be. We know that this is not possible on our power. But today we just lay ourselves at your feet and we surrender ourselves to you and we trust that you who have begun a good work in so many hearts today will continue this good work and that we will no longer be coming to GYC year after year after year, but instead we will be having reunions together with you in heaven. This is our prayer. In your holy name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.